welcome to the St. John's Hoxton podcast. We are a local church in East London, here to be a beacon of hope for Hoxton. And our mission is to worship God, make disciples, share Jesus and transform Hoxton. Have you ever thought um, about why you give up a nice, relaxing Sunday morning and come to a large Victorian heavily painted building um, to sing, to uh, listen to a talk, uh, and to go through some rituals. Well, I guess there are many reasons which you could give me, perhaps because you always have, uh, because you get to see some of your friends, because your children are looked after for a little while in kids' group, you get a bit of a break, Um, because you think you're supposed to or because you think God will be cross with you if you don't. Now, a a survey was conducted last year in the US uh, by uh, asking um, about attendance at religious services. Um, And the top 10 reasons, if we can have the next slide, for those who attended a religious service once a month were these. Uh, To become closer to God, that's good. So their children will have a moral foundation. To become a better person, Um, For comfort in times of trouble or sorrow, they find the sermons valuable. Um, To be part of a faith community, to continue their family's religious traditions because they feel obliged to go, to meet new people or socialize, and to please uh, their family spouse or partner. The survey also asked why people would skip um, regular religious services, Um, and the, the primary answers were this. Uh, that the respondees practice their faith in other ways, that they're not believers, well, that's perhaps not surprising then, Um, that they haven't found a place of worship that they like, that they don't like the sermons, Uh, they don't feel welcome, they don't have time, poor health or mobility, or that there's no place of worship in their area. And I suspect the reasons would be pretty much the same if you ask people uh, in this country. And you may be able to identify with, with some of those reasons. But whatever your reasons for being here this morning, you are here. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would uh, take these words of mine as we look at your scripture. And that, Lord, you would give them life. And that, Lord, you, uh, through them, would give us life that, Lord, we would be encouraged and built up in Jesus' name. Amen. I can identify with a few of those reasons for not uh, attending church. Um, I grew up as a a Catholic, and uh, in the Catholic Church, uh, Sundays are called Holy Days of Obligation, uh, and it's a sin if you don't go to church. So as a family, we went pretty much regularly every Sunday. Uh, But fortunately, um, along the way, I came to believe that following Jesus was the right way to live and um, gained a a real faith. But as a young lawyer, um, I uh, got a job out in Hong Kong and had to to emigrate. So uh, when I arrived there, I I looked for a church um, to go to for Mass. Uh, But at the time, the, the, the local churches were either primarily for the, for, the, for the Chinese community there, um, or for the very large Filipino community. So I didn't find a church um, that I particularly liked, 
that I felt welcomed into. Um, and also, uh, Sundays was my only full day off because I um, had to work most Saturday mornings. And so I thought, well, I know Jesus. Um, I can follow Jesus. I can pray. I can do this on my own. I don't need church. I, I really didn't have a very good understanding uh, of church. Uh, and things began to go wrong in my life uh, until God uh, intervened. Uh, but that's a whole other story. The biblical truth is that you can't be part of the, the universal church without being part of and actively involved in a local church. It's simply not possible. It's not biblical uh, and it's not healthy. First, it's simply not possible. To, to imply that you can be part of a, a greater community, i.e. being a Christian, without first being part of the, the smaller, the local Christian community, the local church, just isn't logical. Life doesn't work like that. For example, you can't be a member of a, uh, of a political party without being a member of a local chapter or association. You can't be a member of the universal human family without being part of your own family. Second, I don't think it's biblical. Every letter in the New Testament is, assumes that Christians are members of a local church. The letters themselves are addressed to local churches. Churches in specific places, in specific towns or cities. To the, to the small communities of believers gathered there. And the New Testament letters teach how to get along with other members, how to encourage the weak, how to conduct ourselves in church, what to do with unrepentant members. They command us to submit to elders. They encourage us to go to the elders for prayer. But you can't do any of that if you aren't a member of a local church. Now, does the Bible say explicitly, thou shalt go to church? Well, no, it doesn't. But asking where the Bible commands you to be a church member is like looking at the Football Association rulebook and asking where does it say that footballers have to be humans? It's assumed. It doesn't have to be said. And in a similar way, the, the Bible is addressed to the church. So I suppose the, the next question then to ask is, what is church? Now, many, many reams of paper have been spent over 2,000 years by very clever people trying to define what church is. You could look at it from a sociological angle. It's a group of people gathered together around a set of beliefs. You could look at it from an anthropological angle that humans like to, to work together. Uh, working groups, you could use organizational or management theory or educational theory or psychology, and that's all helpful and they all give insights. But the question is, what does God say about the church? The question is theological. The church, after all, was founded by Jesus. If we have the next slide. He said, I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. So the church belongs to Jesus. It's his church, and he will build it. And to build implies um, expansion and growth. Like the early church, which initially gathered in the temple courts and then in each other's homes, we, we gather in his name here each Sunday. And gathering requires more than one person. It implies 
relationship. And I think this is hardly surprising because God in himself is relational. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Trinity. Each member of, of the Godhead is in continuous relationship with the others. And the story of creation in the book of Genesis tells us that God created men and women in his image. So we must be hardwired for relationship. Indeed, the, the complementarity of, of men and women, however we understand that, suggests that to be human means that relationship is essential. We're not designed to do life on our own. Following Jesus, therefore, cannot be a solitary occupation, as I sadly thought I could do in Hong Kong. Jesus didn't live on his own. Initially, he had the security of his family with Joseph and Mary. Then he sought out the 12 apostles. As well as the 12, the Gospels mention there were 70 or 72 followers. Uh, and then at the beginning of the book of Acts, we're told there were, were 120 disciples at the time of Jesus' ascension. And Jesus didn't allow his followers to minister on their own. If you remember, he sent them out in pairs. We're in this following Jesus thing together. And whilst there is much that can be said and, and debated um, about what the church is, um, I like this uh, writer's definition of church, that it's the social or human manifestation of the life of God. Because it emphasizes that in our gathering, in our relationships with each other, we demonstrate, or if you like, we're a, we're a window for others, for our neighbors, to in some way glimpse into the life of God, or at least see the consequences of lives changed by lives submitted to God. And in our consumer, me-centered culture, we can focus far too much on ourselves, my commitment to Jesus, my walk with him, my personal relationship with Jesus, my style of worship, and so on and so on. And yes, we do need those things, and we do have preferences. They're important. But we need to remember that we are sinners and live in a fallen world. And what we think and what we think we need um, is not always what's best for us. We need each other to encourage us when life's hard, to cheer us on when things are going well, to have fun together and to remind us that, uh, of God's word and, and biblical truth, to keep us true to those baptismal promises we made to follow Jesus. We need each other. And so uh, Paul, in his letter to the church in Corinth, uses, as uh, we've heard in today's reading, the image of the church as a body. He says, just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body. So it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body. And so the body is not made up of one part, but of many. But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. Its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. And then he says, now 
You are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. So the church, says Paul, is like a body made up of different parts, and every bit of it is essential. Everything needs to work together, and no part can be dispensed with for the body to function properly. We here at St. John's are, as Paul says, the body of Christ, and each one of us is a part of it. And not just a part of it, we are an essential part of it. In an earlier part of the same letter to, to the church in Corinth, Paul rebukes the Corinthians for arguing over whose church it was. Was it Paul's because he'd planted it? Or was it Apollos's because he was the vicar? And Paul says, don't be foolish. What after all is Apollos and what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. For we are fellow workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. So you may think you chose to come to St. John's, and in one sense, of course, you did. But it was the Holy Spirit that led you here so that God could build us up. You're here because... God has called you here, and we need you to be part of us so that we, St. John's, can be all that God wants us to be. Whoever you are, whatever you think of yourself, your abilities, your skills, you're vital to the life of this church. If you weren't here, how often you may come or how much or little you may currently contribute your time, energy, and money to the life of St. John's, we would be diminished. Your life, your experience, whether you're 8 or 80, whether you were born in this country or overseas, whether you're fair-skinned or dark, whether you've been to university or left school without any qualifications, you are God's gift to this church. And Jesus is building it here at St. John's. And not only that, but you're God's gift um, to us. You're God's gift to me. Let me digress for a moment onto a topic close to my heart, uh, that of adoption. The Bible tells us that when we choose to follow Jesus, God the Father adopts us into his family, and we become in Jesus the children of God. In the Church of the New Testament, we find Jews and Greeks and Romans, slaves and freemen, men and women, and shockingly for the culture at that time, they were all treated as equals. And Paul says that we are one in Christ, built together to be the dwelling place of God. And churches, I think, are rather like adoption agencies, as we gather and welcome the stranger and the alien, the people who are not like us, who come through those doors. We take a risk as we open ourselves up to being challenged by others who are different to us. We open ourselves up to seeing the world through different eyes, and I think the dynamic of adoption is, a, is an implicit or, if you like, unstated value of the church that lies really right at the heart of the church. What I mean is that as we understand our experience of adoption by God, being adopted by God, through his grace and mercy, so in turn we are empowered and enabled to extend grace and mercy. And we find ourselves adopting, welcoming and including Others. We become a, a place of generous hospitality. 
seeking God's blessing in unexpected places. Now Jesus told a parable, a story, about finding help in unexpected places, the parable of the Good Samaritan, one that uh, I suspect you all know well. And it tells us that in God's kingdom, help often comes from and in a way which we do not or cannot expect. In the parable, the appearance of the priest and then the Levite, a temple worker, would have caused Jesus' first century hearers to argue over the issue of the clergy. Some would have protested that the clergy would never have behaved like that, never have walked by on the other side, and others would have just smiled knowingly in amusement at the caricature. And Jesus introduces that tension in order to heighten the real tension to come when he introduces the Samaritan, an outsider, a half-caste, an enemy of the Jews. See, no good Jew in the first century would have allowed themselves to be helped by a Samaritan. It's just ridiculous. And perhaps if Jesus had reversed the roles with a Jew helping a Samaritan, that might have been slightly more acceptable. But it's interesting that in the parable, the victim in the ditch has nothing to do and nothing to say. He's unable to resist the Samaritan's help. Jesus makes the Samaritan behave in a way that's completely contrary to Jewish expectations. And what he's telling us is that in, his, in God's kingdom, the kingdom is open to outcasts, to the undeserving, to those who don't merit inclusion, and that those we may think of as, as enemies or outsiders can be instruments of God's compassion and grace. So the real message, I think, of the parable of the Good Samaritan isn't just love your enemies. It's rather let your enemies love you. And Jesus is teasing us, as he often does. He's inviting us to see that there can be many agents of the love of God, many ways in which his mercy is poured out, and that our feeble tribal boundaries, our sure sense of what's right, won't last. The walls we build between us here on earth do not reach to heaven. So the lawyer who asked Jesus the question, who is my neighbor, and prompted the parable of the Good Samaritan, got a very surprising answer. That the person you thought was your enemy, God has set apart to bless you and widen your horizons. In the Gospels, when Jesus is questioned and asked for a black and white answer, he pretty much always gives a relational answer. Salvation is not about what we think, whether we've assented to the correct creed. Rather, it's practiced. Salvation isn't an abstract theory, but a habit of the heart. And the parable invites us to reflect upon the tribal boundaries we place around ourselves and others, and it challenges them. We live in a risk-averse society. We like to play safe. But this parable says that some of the people we think are least likely to be helpful to us actually turn out to be angels in disguise. And the story invites us, I think, to contemplate taking risks in our relationships and in learning to see the good in individuals or groups that we have hitherto regarded as unsafe or even as bad neighbors. This is the challenge for those of us who adopt and welcome a child into their family. The tribal boundary of the family is broken. The alien, the outsider, is welcomed in. And the process is not one way. 
the child experiences love and grace and hopefully finds security, peace, and hope for a brighter future. But the family has changed too. Relationships may be disrupted and altered. It may be uncomfortable and challenging. And we find that under pressure, we can't avoid who we really are. And the experience leads to greater self-awareness, personal growth, and ultimately, a stronger family. Those we think of as aliens and strangers often turn out to be the best neighbors. Some of the people we regard with fear, suspicion, or even contempt can turn out to be good Samaritans. But to find this out, we have to take risks. When we choose to cross our normal boundaries and comfort zones, we can find love, and I would hope the trace of a more inclusive society. Somewhere deep in this dynamic, we discover that it is in giving that we receive. At the end of the reading we heard from 1 Corinthians, Paul says, you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is part of it. In the next chapter, chapter 13, he writes about love, that well-known passage often used in, in weddings. Love is patient, love is kind, love never fails. And he concludes that passage saying that in the end, when everything's stripped away, what matters is faith, hope, and love, and that the greatest of these is love. So, in conclusion, we're called to faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We're blessed in that faith by the hope that in the end, as the Bible tells us, the Lamb wins. He defeats death, sin, darkness, and the spiritual forces arraigned against the kingdom of God. But what keeps us true to Jesus and what will last when all else is gone is the love that we have shown and the love that we have received. That love, as Jesus shows us in the parable of the Good Samaritan, if it's to be a demonstration of divine love, requires us to take risks, to cross boundaries, to move outside our comfort zones. It requires us not only to love our enemies, but to receive love from those we might think are different from us. So, St. John's, let's do this, both among ourselves here and with our friends and neighbors outside. And then I think we will truly demonstrate the life of God and our neighbors who do not yet know Jesus, who are yearning for love and for acceptance and for forgiveness in a world that is territorial and judgmental and unforgiving, will take note and wonder. And then we, you and I, will be there with gentleness and respect, with our own stories of the way in which Jesus has shaped our lives. And we will, as scripture says, give an answer to everyone who asks for the hope that we have. And God, in his grace, will build a church. Amen. Thanks for listening to the St. John's Hoxton podcast. New talks will be uploaded every week from all of our services. And do check out our website, stjohnshoxton.org.uk, for more information.